Where'd all the violence come from in Iraq? Today, Tuesday, May 28th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. U.S. troops pulled out of Iraq about a year and a half ago, but the country is still racked by sectarian violence. There's a real lack of faith on the part of Iraqis that their politicians represent them, that their security forces can protect them. Also today, the rising threat of so-called lone wolf terrorist attacks and the man who worked to inspire them. He's the one who said, look, what we need to do is demoralize the West. Also on the program, China's great graffiti debate, and later, the rules for German beer. Beer in Germany can only be made with the following ingredients. Barley, hops, and water. Very simple, very pure. And how that formula might stop fracking in its tracks. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If the 9-11 attacks brought Americans face-to-face with an organized global terror network, more recent attacks have highlighted the threat from so-called lone wolf terrorists. The Boston Marathon bombings and the hacking murder of a British soldier last week both featured radicalized individuals who carried out attacks with what appears to be no direct guidance from recognized extremist leaders. And that may have also been the case with the unknown assailant who attacked a French soldier with a box cutter over the weekend. French police are still investigating that. Well, apparently there is one extremist leader who's often associated with this type of lone wolf attack. His name is Abu Musab al-Suri, and Newsweek's Christopher Dickey has been writing about him. He's the one who said... Look, what we need to do is demoralize the West. It's fine to have these spectacles like 9-11, but those are hugely costly and difficult to mount. What we need to do is encourage people to take the initiative to sow terror wherever they can so that we can demoralize the West and weaken its efforts to fight wars in places like Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. Uh, And that was the basic philosophy. And it is what we see not only being carried out, but being articulated by people with blood on their hands in the streets of London. Now, in 2005, the Pakistanis captured al-Suri and reportedly turned him over to the CIA. I mean, the way you describe it, what happened to al-Suri while in CIA custody is either insidious or incompetent. Which one was it? I think it's typical of what goes on in the sort of shadow world where the CIA operates. Uh, In 2005, the CIA was handed al-Suri by the Pakistanis. But it was at a time, as you'll recall, when the United States was suffering huge losses and its allies were suffering huge losses in Iraq, uh, partly as a result of the fact that the Syrians were helping jihadists get into Iraq so they could blow themselves up and a lot of Americans with them. So the CIA was trying to develop a liaison relationship with the Syrian intelligence services to try and discourage them from doing that or, or encourage them to stop doing it. And one of the things that the CIA did was to turn over this infamous jihadist, uh, Abu Musab al-Suri, to the Syrian intelligence services, who put him in jail and I'm sure did many other things with him. Does it strike you as bizarre, Christopher, that the U.S. intelligence agencies would offer him to Bashar al-Assad? Well, I think it was not wise for them to do that in retrospect. Uh, The alternative would have been to keep him indefinitely in secret CIA prisons, which of course eventually were shut down, or to put him in Guantanamo, 
So I think that they thought, we'll get this guy off of our hands. The Syrians hate him. They'll put him under the jail. It's a whole cynical commerce in human lives and in human intelligence, as they call it. So what did the Syrians do with al-Syria, and where is he now? They put him in a prison in Aleppo, or near Aleppo, and uh, kept him there for several years. But after the Arab Spring inspired a revolution in Syria, and the Obama administration said finally that the Assad regime, which had been cooperating with us to some extent, should step down, then Assad decided he would just release al-Suri. And so in January of 2012, a bit over a year ago, uh, al-Suri and probably one of his top aides were both released from prison in Syria in order to tell the Americans, uh, we're no longer playing ball with you. And you see, we really are having to deal with terrorists. What do you think is a lesson from al-Suri's story for intelligence operatives? One of the lessons is that handing over these kinds of people to supposedly cooperative or friendly intelligence services in today's world is not wise for a lot of reasons. They are torturers, but there are practical issues as well. You can't trust them to hold on to them. I mean, one of the questions that's raised now is if we want to empty out Guantanamo or of many of its inmates by returning them to Yemen, you know, there are real concerns about whether those people returned to Yemen will be kept off the streets. In a lot of cases, they will not be. But the bigger problem is that we now have a situation in Syria where this leading jihadist is on the loose. Whether he can regain the confidence of his comrades is an open question, given that he's been worked over for so long in the prisons of the CIA, the Pakistanis, and the Syrians. But if he can, then he is potentially a hugely important leader for the Syrian al-Qaeda and for global al-Qaeda. Christopher Dickey, the Paris Bureau Chief and Middle East Editor for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. He's also the author, most recently, of Securing the City Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD. Christopher, thank you. Thank you very much, Marco. Tensions have been high in Britain since the Woolwich attack, which Christopher Dickey just mentioned. The perpetrators made no secret of their Muslim extremist views during and after the murder of British soldier Lee Rigby on a South London street last week. Since then, hate crimes have spiked around Britain. Muslims have been assaulted. Several mosques have been vandalized and one was firebombed. Anti-Muslim protests have been staged in several cities, including London, where a thousand people demonstrated outside the prime minister's residence at 10 Downing Street yesterday. Yesterday. Those protests have been organized by a group called the English Defense League. Daniel Trilling is the author of Bloody Nasty People, a study of Britain's far-right subcultures. He was at the rally in London yesterday. First of all, tell us what you saw, Daniel, when you were there. I saw around about a thousand supporters of the English Defence League. Many were drunk. They were chanting. They weren't just chanting things like "We hate Cameron," as you heard in in that clip, but they were chanting extremely offensive things about Muslims. Uh, there was actually some fighting between members of the the demonstration itself because some of them were actually giving Nazi salutes, and other EDL supporters didn't like that. This is an argument that their supporters frequently have among one another. Mm. Now, who are these guys, the English Defence League, and how they uh, how they tried to capitalise on the murder in London last week? 
Well, the English Defence League is a, is a fairly loose network of people who've um, come to it through football hooliganism, uh, people who are driven mainly by a hatred or a fear of Muslims or a belief that uh, Muslim extremists are poised to take over the UK, and also groups of more traditional far-right racists, people who have neo-Nazi beliefs and, and the rest of it. I mean, at the same time, there's also been a rash of things like uh, Islamic graffiti on war memorials. How representative is that? And is that kind of pushing the, the polarization even further? Well, first of all, I don't think it's been established who put that graffiti there. Secondly, it's absolutely not representative of British Muslims, just as the English Defence League are not representative of British Christians or white British people. Um, now, the English Defence League were able to have just over a 1,000 people turn up to their demonstration yesterday. What was far less reported in the media was that 3,000 Muslims turned out for prayers for the, the murdered soldier on Saturday evening at a mosque to the south of London. Yesterday, EDL supporters went to a demonstration at a mosque in York, uh, and the Muslims at the mosque offered the protesters tea and biscuits, kind of heading off any possibility of of violence. How sincere are these new kind of uh, converts to the EDL, if you will? Well, I think that shows you how contradictory the EDL is as a movement. The kind of people who will be attracted to their demonstrations now will be somewhat different. There will be people who are angry and concerned and and don't really know what's going on and, and want answers about, you know, they want to know, is Islam a violent religion inherently? And they go to demonstrate and it shows that actually you can peel off these more peripheral supporters and actually, you know, dialogue and talking things out can can make a huge difference as it did in York when they sat down and had uh, tea and biscuits and played Mm. football together. I mean, it's clear, though, that this uh, reprise of the EDL is some kind of backlash to the Woolwich killing last week. Are are you concerned about a longer-term trend here? I think it's... It's of concern. I mean, the real test is whether the EDL managed to retain their support beyond this week. Past experience would show that it will, again, drift away. It's a, the EDL isn't a political party, so it doesn't have a central structure that keeps people disciplined. It doesn't even have a set of agreed ideas. That's why the people that turn up on the demonstrations will range from actual neo-Nazis to people who just don't like Islam or Christian fundamentalists and the rest of it. It, Its strength when it is strong is that it brings in all of those different groups of people, but for that very reason it falls apart extremely quickly. Daniel Trilling, the author of Bloody Nasty People, a study of Britain's far-right subcultures. Thanks for your time. Thank you. After several recent terror attacks, surveillance video has emerged as a key tool for investigators, but reviewing video quickly can be a problem. An Israeli computer scientist has a solution. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. The problem faced by law enforcement is summed up in a recent episode of the CBS crime drama Elementary. Two investigators working on a murder case find themselves with lots of video evidence and not much time. You said you found a couple of thousand hours of footage? Cameras run 24-7. I'm going to need teams working on shifts to get through it all. It's going to take days. Now, you might think there's a simple solution. Just hit fast forward and watch the video at breakneck speed. But that presents problems. Imagine, say, that you recorded an audio conversation on the street. You want to wait in the line or you want to go put the money in the I'll go put money in the meter. I'll meet you inside. Okay. If you played that back on fast forward, it's not very helpful. So computer scientist Shmuel Pelik of Hebrew University and his students came up with a different way to compress time. So when we have uh, hours, days, weeks of video from surveillance cameras, 
at the first stage, uh, we separate automatically the moving object from the static background. In other words, the video might record a car driving past and later a person walking by against an otherwise unchanging street corner. Peleg's software identifies those moving objects and then plays them back together as if the car and the person went past at the same time. We pack as many objects as we can from as many different times as we can so that we could see all the objects and all the activities in as short as possible time. Now, if you include lots of moving objects, it can make for a very crowded video. Consider again our audio example. Let's say we captured multiple conversations on the street. You want to wait in the line or you want to go put the money in the I'll go put money in the meter. Because it's a beautiful day. I mean, it's just... You know, it's been raining every afternoon. This and then, if we played them back at the same time, it sounds confusing. But the thing with video is that when someone is doing something different from everyone else, it really jumps out. And that can be helpful when trying to find out quickly who might be up to no good, says Mordecai Kedar. He's a former Israeli military intelligence officer. Let's say if you come to a situation which, which you have half percent of the people behaving not in the usual way, it's a big advantage. You don't have to, to look at 99.5% of the people. And because of this advantage, law enforcement agencies around the world are now using this Israeli technology, according to the company that sells Professor Peleg's software. The company's called BriefCam. Executives suspect their software was used in the Boston bombing case. They say it was definitely used by authorities in Norway after the 2011 bombing and mass shooting there. As for Professor Pellig, he says he's pleased that his software is being used as a tool of law enforcement, but he doesn't think that fighting terrorism will be the real driver of the technology. Somehow I'll be much happier if more people use it for more daily cases rather than for terrorism. He says business owners use his software to keep an eye on their buildings and parking lots. Supermarkets use it to track the flow of customers in their stores. And he says it can even be used at home to enhance videos of new babies, pets, and elderly parents, or just to shorten the time required for sitting through them. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. You can see how the Israeli software works. We've got videos at theworld.org. And tomorrow on PBS, find out how technology helped police crack the case of the Boston Marathon attacks. Watch the program Manhunt, Boston Bombers, tomorrow night on Nova. Still ahead, the strange case of Chinese graffiti on the world from PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There are lots of people out there who oppose hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Much of that opposition relates to the vast quantities of water that need to be injected below ground in order to release previously untapped natural gas deposits. But in the debate over fracking, no one really expected one obstacle that Germans have raised, and that obstacle is beer. Yeah, you certainly do not want to mess with the Reinheitsgebot, Marco. And that's the world's Clark Boyd, who's known to drink a brew or two now and then. And Reinheitsgebot, what's that? That is the German purity law. And this was first written down and codified and put into law back in 1516. It's nearly 500 years old. Germans like to point out that it's probably one of the oldest pieces of food 
uh, and drink regulation in the world. And it basically says that beer in Germany can only be made with the following ingredients, barley, hops, and water. Very simple, very pure. Right. So uh, at the time, there was no fracking, but presumably they wanted for perpetuity the water to be clean and pure, yeah? There were no specific stipulations about sort of the cleanliness of the water, but it just it was about those three ingredients. But of course, you know, over time, uh, as, as the beer industry has grown in Germany, and it's huge, it's global, it's of massive proportions, um, you know, it's become very, you know, it, it's a point of pride. Uh, among Germans that this, you know, 500-year-old law be upheld and that the, the beer be made as simply and as, and as pure as possible. So have the Braumeisters in Germany publicly come out against fracking? Yeah, the union, the brewer's union there uh, ha- has come out and said that uh, what's going on, Marco, is that the German government is debating a number of different measures, how they're going to regulate this, you know, relatively new way of extracting oil and gas. Some uh, some politicians would like to see it outlawed completely. Others are proposing changes that would help protect natural resources in Germany. The Brewers Union says what they're discussing right now, it doesn't go far enough. We can't guarantee mm. the, the cleanliness, the purity of the German beer, and, and that's a problem for them. And it's a big issue in Germany because the bottom line for the Braumeisters and the union is significant. Beer is a major commodity in Germany, isn't it? If you'll just indulge me in a few numbers here, more than 1,300 brewers in Germany, employing more than 25,000 people. It is a $10 billion a year industry. Germans consume 2.4 trillion gallons of beer a wow. year. <laughs> 2.4 trillion. Yeah, get your head around that. I can't. So what, what's the, what's going to be the impact? Does a union carry a lot of weight? Can the beer union in Germany stop fracking there? Well, it's certainly, uh, politicians are definitely going to pay attention to it. I've been looking at this story all day, and, and there are lots of pictures of, of the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, who recently was in Bavaria, you know, knocking back one of those big leaders of beer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's certainly a very, very powerful uh, force in German society. You know, what impact uh, just the Brewers Union coming out against this will have, it, it's kind of hard to say. But let me put it this way. Also, recently, the German mineral water companies came out against fracking in a very similar vein. Nobody paid attention. But the beer companies, <laughs> the, the brewers come out against it. You can bet that people are going to pay attention. All right. The world's Clark Boyd. Cheers. Thanks. Our next story takes us to a peninsula in Greece that juts out into the northern Aegean Sea. This is no ordinary piece of Greek territory. It's an autonomous state known as the Holy Mountain. About 2,000 monks live there, and it's one of the holiest sites for Orthodox Christians. And you're welcome to visit, but not if you're female. Reporter Matthew Brunwasser spent four days in Mount Athos among the monks and the pilgrims there. The only way to reach the Holy Mountain is by ship. That's to help keep out what the residents of Mount Athos call the world. Orthodox Christian believers say that to pray on Mount Athos means your prayers are closer to God. Dimitri Christophoridis, who's visiting for the first time, says he expects the holy mountain to be a place that gives pilgrims perspective as they spin around the hamster wheel of life. It's not so much that they get away from problems, it's to get a break and see what's real and what's not. As the boat's heavy metal gangway touches down at one of Mount Athos's 20 monasteries, there's a rush of monks, pilgrims and cargo. Visitors are greeted with water, coffee and lokum, or Turkish delight, and shown their simple rooms. After settling in, there's free time to think things over. A lot of time. 
pilgrims are welcome to join the monks in their hours of daily prayers, or not. Life on Athos is demanding, physically and spiritually, with long hours of hard labor and intensive worship. But Father Jeremiah, who came from San Angelo, Texas, 15 years ago, says serving God with prayer makes for a happy life. Whether it's cooking, or whether it's hoeing in the garden, or whether it's taking part in communal worship. Uh, so everything, every aspect of our life is a prayer. And the fathers even speak of, of the ability to pray even while we're sleeping. A monk announces vespers, or the evening service, by hammering on a wooden plank. Mount Athos preserves the ancient call to prayer, known as the Sementron, which some say dates back to the time of Noah calling the animals into the ark. For visitors who aren't Orthodox, the intense spiritual devotion can be strange at first and hard to relate to. Eckhart Schleifenbaum, a finance lawyer from Munich, says he expected the monks to be withdrawn and isolated from the world. Instead, he found some great conversationalists. All the time you speak to these people, they are fully informed of the whole world. Highly educated, interesting, intelligent people, full knowledge of history, of course, medicine. But it's interest, more than interesting, but uh, fascinating. And you wonder what, what makes people live here and stay in this kind of life. Uh, if you look here, he was eight years old. He was actually kind of young. Admiring the bones of his predecessors stacked neatly in the ossuary, Father Jeremiah reflects on his earthly remains waiting here for Judgment Day, since the cemetery has space for only 12 graves. Whenever a monk dies, the oldest remains are removed, the bones washed with wine, and then placed here. Whenever we become a monk, we make promises to God. Just as in a marriage, two people dedicate their life to each other, and those two become one flesh. The same with the monk. The monk is actually united to Christ. We make a promise to stay in the monastery until our last breath. Despite traditions that date back a thousand years, change is slowly creeping in. A road here was paved in the 90s. There are now a few cars and some cell phone coverage. A few monasteries are online. Millennia later, the holy mountain is still finding its place, both as a part of the world and the one beyond. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Mount Athos. We'd love to hear from you with any comments you have on any stories you hear, whether it's about monks in Greece or lone wolf attackers. You can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates from the show throughout the day. We tweet at PRI The World, and you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRI The World. You can find all of those links as well at theworld.org. This is The World on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, in China, there's a replica of an English village complete with church and steeple. But this British architect says the designers just didn't get it right. The proportions are wrong. The use of the different stones all wrong. It just doesn't, it would never be used like that in the genuine English church. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Iraq, it doesn't feature much in U.S. news headlines anymore, not since American troops withdrew from the country in December of 2011. Even before that date, interest had begun waning. But these are troubled and bloody times in Iraq. A wave of sectarian violence is sweeping the country. More than 800 Iraqis have been killed in attacks since the beginning of January, and the current month of May has been especially bloody. Yesterday, a series of car bombings tore through mostly Shiite neighborhoods in the Baghdad area, leaving more than 60 people dead. And today, a minibus and a suicide truck bomb killed at least seven more. Jane Araf is the correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor in Iraq. Uh, first of all, Jane, why is violence on the rise again? Does it feel like sectarian conflicts are just once again out of control? Well, they're certainly intensifying. And a lot of people believe that the violence we're seeing isn't just the usual suspects, al-Qaeda-linked groups, even Shia militias. They believe it's connected to the political crisis. Political crisis has a bit of a different meaning in Iraq because there is never not a political crisis. But this one is particularly entrenched. And it's left Baghdad to go out into the provinces, into the Sunni areas, in places where they were quite volatile to begin with, those areas. But now what we're seeing is, if you will, a, an explosion in certain kinds of violence in places where there has been a lot of political tension. Right. And if you ask Iraqis, why is this all happening now or who's to blame for these current attacks? How do they answer? Depending on where they're located, where they're sitting, whether they're in those areas where their bombing is taking place, a lot of people blame it on political leaders, which is a really chilling thought when you think of it, because the thought there is that their politicians aren't just politicians, they're actually contributing to murdering people. And a lot of people actually do believe that, as horrific and far-fetched as that sounds. They also still blame a lot of this on established groups such as the Islamic State of Iraq, which is an al-Qaeda-linked group. Groups like that have never really gone away. The United States fought against them, but they never really destroyed the networks, and those networks are regenerating in places far outside the capital. And if you talk instability in Iraq, do Iraqis talk about the U.S. and the connection to the current violence? Not just Iraqis. I think it is indisputable that a couple of key decisions made very early on after Saddam Hussein was toppled helped lead to the instability that exists here. Those were notably banning Ba'ath Party officials, and not just officials, anyone who really had any connection to the Ba'ath Party of Saddam Hussein. The other key decision was disbanding the army. In doing that, they made sure that senior army officials, many of them Sunni, but not all of them, were not only out of a job, but felt they didn't have a place in this country. And those were the people who helped lead to the insurgency. What we're seeing now is a different kind of insurgency, if you will, because the people fighting see it as an insurgency themselves. But instead of fighting against American soldiers, they're fighting against an Iraqi government that they see as illegitimate. And how do you see it, Jane? I mean, you've covered Iraq for years. You're able to pull back and see the big picture. Is it, is it just insurgency? I mean, what is the violence signify to you? 
it's more unsettling, I think, than it's ever been. Now what we're seeing isn't just the rampant violence, even though the attacks are far fewer than they were at the height of the Civil War. It's a different kind of violence. And it's coincided with almost a de facto partitioning of the country. On Fridays, when there are prayers in Sunni areas and in Sunni provinces like Al-Anbar and Nineveh, you can't leave the city. The Iraqi army has closed off large parts of the capital of Baghdad to prevent insurgents from coming to places like the Green Zone. And then on top of that, there is the political crisis that's going on, which has meant that the country is further at odds with each other. So there's a real lack of faith on the part of Iraqis that their politicians represent them, and in many places, a lack of faith that their security forces can protect them. Almost everything here is in play, and almost everything feels unsettled. Jane Araf with the Christian Science Monitor in Iraq, speaking with us from Baghdad. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you, Marco. China may be the world's most prolific copycat. It's brought us pirated DVDs, fake iPhones, phony Apple stores. There's even knockoff architecture. The city of Suzhou has its own tower bridge, as in London. Hangzhou has an imitation Eiffel Tower. And then there are the full-scale copycat villages. Reporter Ruth Morris paid a visit to Thames Town, about 20 miles from Shanghai. As you enter Thames Town, the honking and chaos of Chinese city life start to fall away. There's no more street vendors selling steamed pork buns. No more men hauling recyclables on three-wheeled bicycles. The road starts to wind around, and then... In the distance, we see what looks like a Cotswold village with a clock tower and a weather vane on the roof. Almost that dreamlike quality of something European. British architect Tony Mackay is the master planner for the Thames Town housing scheme and the surrounding district of Songjiang. When local officials hired him in 2001, he found farms and ducks here. Today there are cobbled streets, pubs, and half-timbered Tudor houses. There's even a statue of Winston Churchill and a medieval meeting hall that advertises chicken wings and beer in Chinese characters. But Mackay is not happy. It doesn't look quite right. It looks false. Mackay says the architects who designed the buildings here created a pastiche. They threw together different styles and threw out authenticity. Take the church. Windows are in the wrong place. The proportions are wrong. The use of the different stones all wrong. It just doesn't, it would never be used like that in the genuine English church. The houses in Thamestown were largely bought up as investment properties, so it's relatively empty. Mackay says the place looks like a film set. One Western blogger said it reminded him of the movie The Truman Show, but Fan Yuji couldn't care less. I found Fan and his bride Sun Chi Yao looking deeply into each other's eyes as a photo assistant showered them with flower petals. Thames Town is crawling with young couples who want to have their wedding photos taken here. Fan tells me they chose this place because they are dying to visit Europe. I love European soccer, so I'm very interested in things from Europe. I really hope I can see the real River Thames one day, sit along the banks, drink a cup of coffee, and enjoy the British sunshine. 
<laughs> Nearby, Zhang Li snacks on tangerines and plays cards with her mother and aunt. Zhang says she's come here on her day off because it's green and pleasant. But as an office worker, she can't afford to travel to England. Usually, if you want to see foreign buildings, you have to go abroad. But if we import them to China, people can save the money while experiencing foreign-style buildings. In Hangzhou, I visited a replica of Venice. There was a replica of Paris, not that far away. In Beijing, Bianca Bosker is author of the book Original Copies, Architectural Mimicry in Contemporary China. Now, it's not just Chinese. Americans also build themed replicas, for instance, the country pavilions in Epcot. But while many Westerners think of knockoff architecture as kitsch and bizarre, Bosker says many in China find it truly lovely. She says that's partly because China has a different attitude towards copying. In the West, copying signals a lack of imagination. But here... China's mimicry is actually a form of mastery in a symbolic sense. She notes that China's first emperor celebrated the conquest of rival kingdoms by building replicas of their palaces within his own capital city. Now fast forward to China's economic opening. By bringing in this, these copies of Paris or Venice or Amsterdam, China is, in a very symbolic way, showing off its ability to rearrange the cosmos, to sort of own the greatest hits of the West. Mackay, the architect, says not for much longer. He says China's imitation towns are a fad, a byproduct of China's desire to connect with the world. But he sees a new trend emerging. The younger generations here, they don't want old-fashioned style. They want modernism. They want something new which connects, you know, to their gear, their iPads, their, um, their modern lifestyle. One example is the sleek, ultra-modern Wangjing Soho project in Beijing. When it's finished, it will resemble three fish-like forms emerging from a stream. There's just one problem. A suspiciously similar structure is being built in the city of Chongqing. According to one industry publication, the alleged copy may be finished before the original. For The World, I'm Ruth Morris, Thamestown, China. Take a stroll through the streets of China's Thames Town. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Our next story also involves China, but it starts in the very authentic ancient Egyptian temple in the city of Luxor. A Chinese tourist who was there recently was surprised by something she saw. Chinese characters etched on a 3,500-year-old stone relief of Alexander the Great. The character said Ding Jinhao was here. The tourist was appalled and embarrassed. She took a photo of the graffiti, then posted it online with an apology. That photo was tweeted and retweeted, and the online hunt for Ding Jinhao began. Rachel Liu watched the ensuing online frenzy. Liu is the co-founder and editor of the website Tea Leaf Nation in Hong Kong. Ding Jinhao has a pretty rare name. And very soon, vigilantes in China started to find out who he is, you know, where he's from. And they soon found out that he is from Nanjing. And he is a young boy uh, who attends seventh grade, I believe. 
And so there is a lot of criticism online of this boy and his parents. And there's a lot of reflection about, you know, Chinese tourists and what they do abroad these days. The whole debate has gotten very polarized online. There is a, a tinge of, you know, class warfare in here, basically, because uh, any Chinese person who can go abroad to tour at all, and especially to a place like Egypt, is assumed to be rich. And these days, you know, rich people are not well-liked in China. Um, there's a lot of people who assume that they somehow got rich through corruption or other very sketchy methods. So there's a lot of uh, criticism of Ding and his parents on that level. How are Chinese tourists viewed overseas? And how do Chinese think of themselves as tourists overseas? China is a big country, so there's a lot of people who are able to go overseas these days. There is sort of a bourgeois middle class who go abroad and think of themselves as very, quote-unquote, civilized, and they will point out the bad behavior of other Chinese tourists. And then there is a lot of people who go abroad and think this is kind of their spring break because mm. they've made a lot of money and they're able to afford this vacation and, you know, they're going to really have a good time. As to how they are viewed overseas, I think I saw like a survey a couple of years ago where they rank the least like tourists and the Americans are number one and the Chinese are number two. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even, even the Chinese vice premier, Wang Yang, recently scolded Chinese saying, they speak loudly in public, carve characters on tourist attractions, cross a road when the traffic lights are still red, spit anywhere. He says it damages the image of the Chinese people. How are Chinese responding to comments like that? Yeah, I think a lot of people do agree that it is a problem. And because China is expanding in many ways abroad, you know, in terms of, you know, business relationships, it does damage the overall impression of the Chinese people in the minds of many foreigners. Loud and lots of money to spend. That's a reputation that has dogged Americans for many years, the idea of the ugly American. Do you think that the economic mobility in China has created an understanding of an ugly Chinese at this point? I'm located in Hong Kong and, you know, it is technically a part of China. But when mainland tourists come to Hong Kong, there is a negative stereotypes associated with them, not waiting in line and talking loudly on subways and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm sure that just a small sub of these millions of Chinese tourists who come to Hong Kong and contribute to the Hong Kong economy. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of you know, local resentment against them. You know, and, and just getting back to what uh, Din Jinhao scrawled in graffiti on the wall in Luxor in Egypt. I mean, uh, Din Jinhao was here. That, that's a very passe bit of graffiti. Is, is that common, though, in China? Uh, yeah, it is actually quite common. If you go to Chinese sites, you see this kind of graffitis all the time. Uh, you know, so-and-so is here, and I'm here with my boyfriend, girlfriend. We're going to be together forever, that kind of thing. So <laughs> it is quite common. Rachel Liu, editor of the website Tea Leaf Nation, speaking with us from Hong Kong. Thank you. Thank you. And this good news to report, experts were able to remove Ding Jinhao's graffiti, and the 3,500-year-old relief is as good as new, sort of. Our GeoQuiz takes us down to the southern reaches of the Andes. That's a long way down since the Andes run more than 4,000 miles along the Pacific coast of South America. And near the southern end, there's a volcano we want you to name. It has a massive crater lake at the summit containing highly acidic and toxic waters. That explains why its name in the indigenous Mapuche language means sulfur waters. The volcano has scientists worried right now 
been generating thousands of tremors in recent days, and there are fears of an explosive eruption. That's why authorities in both Chile and Argentina have issued a red alert for local residents. Don't you panic. We just want you to name the volcano. We'll hear more on the alert when we come back with the answer after the break. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A threatening volcano in Chile is belching gas and has got people on the run. Thank goodness it's not the one in Iceland, which was so hard to pronounce. This volcano is easier to say, and I'm just going to ask our guest to tell us its name. Gideon Long is with the BBC and reports out of Chile's capital, Santiago. Uh, Gideon, what is the name of this volcano down there that's been uh, so threatening lately? This volcano is called Copaue, which apparently in the local Mapuche language means place of sulfuric waters. Wow, very appropriate. So where exactly is Copaue? It's around 600 kilometers south of Santiago, where I am at the moment, and it's right up on the border with Argentina at an altitude of around 3,000 meters. So it's a fairly remote place, which is obviously good in terms of evacuating the people who live on its slopes. Uh, The government has declared uh, an area of 25 kilometer radius around the volcano, which they've said they want to evacuate people from. And in total, on both sides of the border in Chile and in Argentina, that's around 3,000 people. Right. And people are being evacuated currently? They are indeed. That evacuation started early this morning. Uh, People have started moving away from the area. And the idea is that they will be housed in temporary shelters uh, and in schools further away from the volcano until they hope uh, everything passes peacefully and they can return to their homes. Right. And on the border with Argentina, as it is, this is cattle country. I I, I gather there are some ranchers who are not happy about leaving uh, this area, leaving their cattle behind. That's right. I think livestock is really the main concern because, uh, as I say, it's not a particularly populated area of the country. Uh, The people can be moved fairly easily, but a lot of them are reluctant to leave behind both their cattle and sheep. And we've seen this in past volcanic explosions in Chile. What tends to happen is a huge uh, ball of ash is dumped on the fields. That means that the livestock can't graze and many of them die. So many of the ranches are understandably reluctant to leave their cattle behind. Would it be economic disaster if if these herds of cattle and and sheep were killed? Well, it certainly would at a local level for the individual ranchers. It probably wouldn't be at a a national level because Chile is obviously uh, it's a big country and we're talking about one very small part of it. But certainly for the people involved, it could potentially be disastrous. Are there any efforts being made to evacuate the cattle? There aren't at the moment, but thinking back to previous volcanic eruptions in Chile, that has been done. So I suspect if the seismic activity in the area increases, I suspect the government might take that measure and it might try to evacuate cattle and sheep as well as people. And Gideon, when was the last time Copaue erupted? Well, it's one of Chile's more active volcanoes and it actually erupted in December last year, so only six months ago. Right. So how concerned are experts that a major eruption could happen in the next few days? Well, just in the last few hours, there's been one positive signal. They've said that the seismic activity in the area has started to decrease. Over the last couple of days, there have been literally thousands of minor earth tremors in the area, and that's what's caused concern. That's what's led experts to conclude that the volcano might be about to erupt. But they're now saying that just over the last few hours, 
that seismic activity has decreased. So maybe the worst is over and one would hope that maybe in a few days time the residents can return to their houses. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for the people of Capaue in Argentina, in Chile, as well as the cattle. The BBC is getting along with the answer to our geo-quiz today, which is Copaue, the volcano in Chile that's uh, belching gas right now. Gideon, thanks so much. Thank you. And finally on the world, how about a couple of love songs from Spanish crooner Alejandro Sanz? That's the romantic ballad, Se Vende. Now, Alejandro Sanz is one of the most successful Spanish-speaking romantic singers in a market flooded with romantic ballad crooners. Perhaps you've heard of this guy, Julio Iglesias. Yeah, there are lots of them. But Alejandro Sanz has found his niche and a way to make his romantic songs sound different. Well, I grew up, musically speaking, with flamenco, flamenco and rock. So uh, the kind of music I do, it speaks about love, but it speaks about love in, in, a, in a different way. You, you can hear that flamenco um, influence and that uh, rock influence in, in my songs. Um, I know what you're talking about, the, the crooners, uh, the love, um, how do you say, like the, the love singers in, mm. in, in Spanish. You can hear the, the difference if you just put a little bit of, of attention in my, in my songs. Okay. Well, let the music speak for itself. Let's talk just for a second about speech as opposed to song. What is the most romantic thing you can say in Spanish to a loved one? Well, uh, you can say a lot of things in Spanish <laughs> that is very romantic. What's the one thing that you, you always fall back on if you really need to uh, express your love I, to someone? I don't like to say too much uh, like you are my princess or you are my, you know. I prefer to say that you are my, my marciana, my Martian, for example. My Martian? I think it's, yeah. Like I, I somebody think it's from very Mars. Yes, yeah, sadly. I think it's very romantic um, to say that because it's a rare, you know, it's very difficult to find people. Uh, that you can love uh, with with no fears, um, and I think that is from Mark. <laughs> so say it to us in Spanish. Like imagine, you know, your 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 loved one by your side, and you're just telling them you're my Martian in Spanish. Tú eres mi marciana. Wow, it, it, it works. It's amazing. <laughs> it works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Spanish pruner Alejandro Sanz says, You are my Martian to his loved one. I prefer Vous êtes mon Vénusien. It's what makes the world and all the planets turn, right? We'd love to know what your favorite term of endearment is in another language. If you don't know any, refer to a fish called Wanda. And let us know at theworld.org. While you're there, you can also have Alejandro Sanz serenade you in the music video to Meet Marciana. Again, that's theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman in the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. Muchas gracias, mi amores. Eres el timbre del nido de mis gorriones. Hueles a hierba y me sabes a tinta y borrones. 
Eres el rayo de mayo, mis letras, tus cremas cantando en el coche. Cuando juntamos las sillas me siento tan torpe. Y tienes guardados abrazos que abarcan ciudades. Tienes un beso de arroz y de leche en el valle Y dices que vienes de Marte y vas A regresar, vamos, que te irás Pero es que a veces, tan solo a veces Lo que está haciendo es lo que parece A veces parece que te hayas marchado ya The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International